We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 9 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. Two weeks from today, my friends. Two short little weeks is March 17th. That's the start of the NFL's new league year, i.e. the start of free agency and the trade period. One of the great days on the sports calendar. Although really, the way that NFL off-seasons now work, it's really the legal tampering period that kicks off free agency. And that gets going on March 15th. Yeah, legal tampering period, March 15th. New league year, March 17th at 4 p.m. But whatever the case may be, we are inching ever so close to a glorious time in sports. One of the most exciting weeks of the year in sports is that start 
of NFL free agency of the trading period to say nothing, by the way, of what that week is going to mean for college hoops, right? That's right in the thick of March Madness. We were largely denied March Madness last year. Uh, that will not be the case in 2021. So things are heating up. Business is picking up. We have lots to talk about today regarding the Washington football team, which apparently is not at all in the mix for Deshaun Watson. And I don't mean that as in he doesn't want to come here. I mean that as in Washington may well have not even made the phone call to the Houston Texans just to see what would it take to get Deshaun Watson to D.C. I got some things to say about that. We'll get into that coming up in just a moment. Also, Kyle Van Noy, the Miami Dolphins are parting ways with him. Could he be the fix or at least part of the fix for Washington's linebacker problem? We'll get into that today. Bad night on Tuesday night for the Wizards. Another good night, though, on Tuesday night for Georgetown. The Hoyas remain alive. There is a pulse for the Hoyas when it comes to making the NCAA tournament. Still not likely, but you can't dismiss it. You can't just bury Georgetown right now when it comes to making the tournament. There is life. There is a gleam, as the late, great Marty Schottenheimer said many years ago. Big game for the Capitals tonight at Boston at 7. The Caps and the Islanders tied atop the East Division at 28 points, two points ahead of the Bruins. Islanders did win on Tuesday night, 2-1 at New Jersey. But a special guest on the show today to talk Caps with the big game tonight. Uh, also, it's a big game on Friday night. Caps are at the Bruins Wednesday night at Boston again on Friday night. Tarek Elbashir, Caps insider for the Athletic DC, one of the best when it comes to talking Caps. He'll be on the podcast in just a little bit. And we're going to talk Nationals today because it turns out, and this cracked me up when I saw this on Tuesday, it turns out that Carter Keboom got laser eye surgery, okay? What is the deal in sports? High-level athletes not taking care of something as simple as their eyes, okay? Especially in baseball, right? You need to be able to see, see clearly, identify pitches, identify the spins on pitches, and you don't take care of your eyes? I don't get that. Maybe that's why the guy struggled so much, especially as a batter in 2020. But yeah, I mean, it's like the, you know, we all remember the famous Carlos Rogers thing. And, you know, one drop pick after another during his time as a Washington corner. He goes to San Francisco. He gets his eyes fixed up. All of a sudden, he's got six picks in his first season as a 49ers corner. Like, I just, I'll never understand that. These athletes make plenty of money, okay? They can afford laser eye surgery. At the very least, they can afford to have their eyes checked out. I know teams have players' visions checked out, but it's like, how is this still a thing <laughs> that, that you don't, like, from the get-go, make sure that your vision is on point? I don't get that. But anyway, we'll have some fun with a Carter Keeboom thing today and... We'll also talk about this. Washington, D.C. still not allowing fans at Nationals Park. I want to get into that. Get into it. We shall. But before we move forward any further, I need to do something. And that is I need to thank you again. This is becoming like a regular thing on this podcast. Me having to say thank you to you. But I found out yesterday that this podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, is number six in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. Last week, number 13 on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. sports category. This week, number six, number six on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. I can't get over that. Honestly, I have a hard time believing it. Like, it's just amazing to me. 
And I thank you. That is a credit to you. That is a testament to you. It is you who deserves the pat on the back for something like that. But I'm thrilled to see that. You know, this is only week two of this podcast, up to number six on Apple Pods in the U.S. football category. But yeah, man, I mean, we talk football on this podcast every weekday, okay? We talk Washington football team on this podcast every weekday. We discuss, of course, the quarterback situation and Alex Smith and Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke and all the potential options that are out there for our team. We talk about the state of the team. We talk about, of course, the owner, the Danny. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes. Thank you, Danny. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you once again for your support, for subscribing, for rating, uh, for reviewing, for spreading the word. You know, let people know about the Al Galdi podcast. You are not beholden to local sports radio. You have options when it comes to DC sports conversation. This podcast is an option. Join the revolution, as so many of you already have. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this tweet from Daniel regarding this latest ranking from Apple Podcasts I just made mention of. Daniel says, congratulations, even the theme song is growing on me. Yes, you know what's funny? You know what's funny? You guys like to knock the theme song for this podcast. I'm getting more and more messages of people saying, you know what? I didn't like the song at first, but it's kind of growing on me. You know, that's the thing, man. It's like a fungus. You know, that song, it just grows and grows. And eventually it's like, you know what? I like it. I don't know why. I don't like that I like it, but I do like it. It's growing on people. So we'll see where that takes us. A tweet from M. Todd H. on the ranking. He says, it means you're close. It means you're close. Yes. Thank you, M. Todd H. Thank you, Brucey. Yes, uh, we are close. Close to what? I'm not sure, but absolutely, we are close. All right, let's get going on this Wednesday. So when you're looking for quarterback certainty, as our team, the Washington football team, has been doing for decades, you pay attention to just about everything, right? You got your eyes and your ears everywhere just to see what could come because you just never know. With that in mind, NFL insider John McClain of the Houston Chronicle went on the B. Mitch and Finley show on 106.7 The Fan on Tuesday and said the following, said that he had, quote, not heard Washington come up one time, end quote, regarding the Washington football team potentially trading for Deshaun Watson. McLean is a name that you likely have heard. He has covered the NFL for years. So he's someone who, when he says something, you pay attention to it, especially regarding the Houston Texans. And McLean said again that Washington has not come up one time regarding all of this trade talk with Deshaun Watson. McLean said that five teams have called about Watson, uh, but did not say that he had heard anyway that Washington has been one of those teams. McLean also, by the way, did say that in terms of, well, what would it take to potentially pry Watson away from the Texans? McLean said three first round picks, two second round picks, and a player might be necessary to get the deal done. So basically the RG3 trade plus a play a player to get Deshaun Watson from the Houston Texans. And of course, that might not end up being enough. But of course, if you're the Texans, you're going to put out there a supremely high price like this, three ones, two twos, and at least a player to try to see what you can end up getting from someone. Now, you know, I, I, I see this report and I say to myself, okay, how literal are we to take this? Like, is it actually true that Washington literally has not even called the Houston Texans? Because, you know, there's been a lot of stuff out there about 
The Texans, they're not even willing to talk to other teams about trading Deshaun Watson. The Texans have no interest in trading Deshaun Watson. The Texans will not be trading Deshaun Watson. So like, what exactly are we talking about here? Is it that the talks have never gotten past, you know, just some sort of introductory cursory point? Or is it, again, literally that Washington has not picked up the phone, not at all contacted the Houston Texans about the availability of Deshaun Watson? Because I actually think the truth with that matters. If it's true that Washington hasn't even made the call, I don't understand that, okay? I mean, I don't think there's really any justification for that. As a front office, you should always make the phone call. As a team in like this perpetual search for quarterback certainty, why the heck wouldn't you just see what it might take to get Deshaun Watson? Even if you know you're going to be told we're not trading him, even if you know that the Texans are going to demand this supremely high price, don't you at least have the conversation? Don't you at least let it be known that you're interested in trading for this guy, that you would be a player in the sweepstakes? for this guy, just so you're in the mix, just so you don't miss out. You know, what if for whatever reason, Watson ends up being traded and what he's traded for ends up not being this monumental price, this unbelievable haul that people keep drawing up. Now, I don't think that would happen. Like I think if he gets dealt, it's going to be for a truckload of picks and maybe players, but you just never know with this stuff. I mean, you would have never predicted that the Texans would have traded away DeAndre Hopkins and gotten back what the Texans got back from the Arizona Cardinals. It was so underwhelming. It was a jaw dropper when that happened last offseason. And, you know, speaking of that, remember what Ron Rivera revealed in the lead up to that week two loss for Washington at the Arizona Cardinals this past season. Ron Rivera said the Wednesday prior to that game, quote, we had no sense, end quote, that Hopkins had been available via trade the previous March. That is unbelievable when you think about it. And I say that not from a Washington standpoint. I say that from a Texan standpoint. Like that to me is one of the greatest indictments of Bill O'Brien. He has on his roster maybe the best receiver in the game. Never mind, you know, why are you trading him to begin with? But okay, you're going to trade him. How do you not let every team in the NFL know that Hopkins is available? How do you yourself not call every team in the league and say, okay, DeAndre Hopkins, available for trade, name me your highest price. You know, develop a bidding war, incite a bidding war to where you can get a gargantuan haul for Hopkins. And O'Brien, for whatever reason, did not do that. You know, so Ron says in September, we had no sense DeAndre Hopkins was available. You do have a sense now about what's going on with Deshaun Watson. Now, again, is he truly available? Are the Texans actually open to trading him? We don't know that. We don't know that. And of course, with Watson too, he's got a no trade clause. He's got to be willing to waive that clause to come to Washington. And it has never been reported that Washington is a team that Watson would be open to coming to. The best intel we have on this came from columnist Armando Soguero of the Miami Herald on January 23rd when he reported that Watson's top two preferences for a new team were first the New York Jets and then the Miami Dolphins. But again, None of that matters. If you're Ron Rivera, if you're Martin Mayhew, if you're Marty Herney, you got to make the phone call. So I don't know exactly, again, like, is it Washington hasn't even had the conversation? Or Washington, you know, has maybe made some inquiries, but has found out, yeah, we're not trading them. And if we do trade them, it's for a lot more than you're willing to give us or able to give us. Because remember, Washington does not have nearly the draft capital that other teams have when it comes to this. So I would wonder about that. 100% Washington, though, should make the phone call. 100% Washington 
should have the conversation. And I know from my standpoint, 100%, Washington should be willing to do the RG3 deal for Deshaun Watson. Like if you told me what Washington gave up to trade up to take Robert in that 2012 draft, three ones, two twos, would you do that for Deshaun Watson? I would do that in a heartbeat. I would. I think he's that good. I think he's that attractive. Deshaun Watson is going into just his age 26 season. He's under team control through the 2025 season, right? Remember, he just signed a four-year contract extension this past September, and he's coming off an outstanding season, even without DeAndre Hopkins on the roster. Number one in the league in yards per pass attempt, number one in the league in passing yards, number three in the league in completion percentage. I mean, on and I, I can go. He is outstanding, okay? He is a franchise quarterback. He is, I believe, an elite quarterback. Now, hasn't necessarily proven it yet in the postseason, but I think that will come, okay? Get him in a an actual normal, healthy situation as opposed to this dysfunctional mess he's been a part of with the Texans. Uh, Deshaun Watson will deliver in January. I, re- I very much do believe that. So three ones, two twos for Watson in a heartbeat. I would do that. Now, if you say, okay, three ones, two twos and the player, I would be open to that. It's going to depend though on who that player is. I would not do Chase Young. I would not do Montez Sweat. I would not do Terry McLaurin, okay? Uh, I'm not interested in parting ways with any of those guys. And I'm not going to do three ones, two twos, and say Montez Sweat, okay? If I'm going to include someone like Montez Sweat, which I really don't want to, okay? But if I'm going to do that, you got to take away one of those ones. Like there has to be a little bit, a little bit of give and take in this situation. And I for darn sure am not trading away Chase Young. And I'm not trading away Terry McLaurin, okay? I really don't want to do that. I understand it is Watson, but at some point, you do have to draw a line somewhere. Like, the price just can't be infinity. You can't just hand the Texans a blank check and say, okay, name me everything you want, and we'll just do it so we can get this guy on our roster. You know, there is a limit to everything on this. But heck yeah, three ones, two twos, no doubt. You know, people talk about, like, you can't mortgage the future. You're not mortgaging the future if you do three ones and two twos for Deshaun Watson. You are enhancing your future. You are bettering your future. Deshaun Watson is not in his 30s. Deshaun Watson is not unproven. Deshaun Watson is not some mystery. You know what you're getting here. A franchise quarterback, cannon arm, can run. Every indication is that he's a great leader. Like, what exactly is there not to like with Deshaun Watson? What what are the nits to pick exactly? with Deshaun Watson. You, you really got to get creative with this. I mean, torn knee a few years ago. Okay. He's been just fine though since then. Like get him here. Absolutely. I would do three ones and two twos for Deshaun. It's not going to happen. Okay. I don't anticipate him being traded to Washington. I'm not even sure still that he ends up being traded. The longer this goes on, you do wonder if the Texans are going to have to cave and just do a deal that they don't want to do, okay? I mean, Deshaun does seem very much to be holding his ground in this situation. I mean, you really can't overstate how much the Texans have butchered this. They've got the golden goose. They've got what so many other teams want, right? A young stud franchise quarterback. You just signed him to an extension and he wants out. Even though you fired Bill O'Brien, he still wants out. Like, Even though you fired Bill O'Brien, Watson still wants out. Like, how do you not fix this if you're the Houston Texans? It it really is incredible that it's gotten to this point. I would love to see him traded here. I don't think that's happening. But just because you don't think it's likely doesn't mean that it's impossible. And you got to at least make the phone call and have the conversation or at least try to have the conversation. And I hope like heck Washington has done that or is going to be doing that. 
Washington on Tuesday did not officially release Alex Smith. The feeling is that that could happen on Wednesday. But there was NFL news on Tuesday that was relevant to Washington, and that was this, the reveal that the Miami Dolphins are parting ways with linebacker Kyle Van Noy. Uh, looks like he's probably going to be released, although there is a possibility that he is traded. Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com said that the Dolphins are going to first try to trade Van Noy, and if not, they're going to end up releasing him. So if you're a team that wants Van Noy, I don't know why you'd give up something to get him when he's about to be cut. And, you know, if he's cut, that contract that he signed last offseason, four years, $51 million, that goes bye-bye. So you can come up with your own terms, your own new deal uh, for Kyle Van Noy. But Van Noy has confirmed this. Uh, He confirmed this via a statement to Mike Garofolo of NFL Network and NFL.com. Van Noy saying that he is, quote, surprised and disappointed, end quote, by the Dolphins' decision, especially given that he was a Dolphins captain this past season and that he fought through a painful hip injury that actually caused him to spend a night in a hospital after a game this past season. It really is something, and it's like example number, you know, 4,020 of why NFL contracts, when you read the headline, mean next to nothing. You know, Van Noy last offseason, four-year, $51 million deal with the Dolphins. And now here they are just a year later cutting ties with him either via release or trade, Miami's going to end up having paid Van Noy one year, $15 million. That's it. So we go from four years, $51 million, to one year, $15 million. It's a beautiful thing, man. These NFL owners, they have got this thing set up so well. The NFL is by far the most popular sport in this country. The NFL is by far, from a standpoint of television money, the most lucrative sport in this country, national television money anyway, because baseball's got a different construct with all those big money local TV deals. And yet the NFL is the only sport out of the big four, MLB, NBA, NHL, that has non-guaranteed contracts. I mean, it, it, it really is something. The, the NFL has set this up so perfectly. Most popular sport, biggest money sport by far in terms of the national television money, and yet the only one in terms of the big four without fully guaranteed contracts. That's a beautiful thing. Man. That, that, is, that is amazing when you really think about this. Uh, there is a significant salary cap savings aspect to all of this for Miami. Cutting Van Noy would save the Dolphins $9.75 million in salary cap space. But here's the deal with Kyle Van Noy. With him becoming available, all right, especially if he's released, I think Washington should be in on him. With the caveat that the medicals check out with the caveat that when Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio and Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney watch the tape, they're not like scared off by what they see from Kyle Van Noy in 2020. Washington acquiring him would just make so much sense. He's going into just his age 30 season. So yeah, he's not in his 20s, but it's not like the guy is old and decrepit. And the thing with Kyle Van Noy is there's just so much to like about him as a player. Kyle Van Noy, first of all, Martin Mayhew drafted Van Noy, okay? So there's that connection, there's that familiarity. Mayhew, during his time as Detroit Lions general manager, took Van Noy in the second round of the 2014 draft at a BYU. Kyle Van Noy offers position flex, right? We've heard Ron Rivera talk about that so often. Remember last offseason, Ron singing the praises of Cole Holcomb for the position flex that Holcomb provides. But Kyle Van Noy for the Dolphins played both inside linebacker and edge rusher. Kyle Van Noy has largely been durable. Yes, he battled that painful hip injury this past season, but he still played in 14 games. In fact, Van Noy over the last six years, 2015 through 2020, has played in 87 
of a possible 96 regular season games. That's 90.1% of possible regular season games that Kyle Van Noy has partaken in. 87 out of 96. And maybe most important of all, Van Noy has been productive. Like it's not just that he's played a lot. It's that he's played well when he's played. Van Noy over the last four years, 2017 through 2020, 21 and a half sacks, 44 quarterback hits. I mean, you look at what he did this past year for Miami, 13 regular season games, six sacks, 10 quarterback hits, 10 tackles for loss for Dolphins defense that finished sixth in the NFL in pass defense for football outsiders, DVOA metric. Van Noy was a staple on the New England Patriots for years. Bill Belichick, love Kyle Van Noy. 2019, Van Noy for the Pats, 15 regular season games, six and a half sacks, 15 quarterback hits, number three on the Pats in defensive snaps. And what was interesting with Van Noy in 2019, he was actually a full-time edge rusher for New England that season. And per pro football focus, had 60 pressures that year. 2018, a Super Bowl winning season for the Pats. Van Noy, 16 regular season games, finished number three on the Pats in defensive snaps at 90.7%. So he's played a bunch and he's played well. And it's not to say that he would be like this cure-all for Washington at the linebacker spot. But the truth is this, I don't think addressing linebacker this offseason is about just getting one guy. You know, it's not about just like some magic bullet solution to the linebacking core. Washington needs multiple guys who can upgrade that linebacker unit. Ron Rivera was publicly critical of the linebackers this past season. He called them out as the season went on, saying they need to be better. And it was a very mixed season for Washington at that linebacker spot. Cole Holcomb was good, but everyone else was mixed to poor. You know, John Bostic again played a bunch, but he was up and down. Uh, Kevin Pierre-Lewis played a lot, especially early in the year, but he was very up and down. And as the season went on, his playing time dipped down. If you're being truthful about this, you need at least two starting caliber linebackers added to things for 2021. Because I look at what Washington had last year. I think Cole Holcomb is a viable starter at linebacker. I don't think anyone else is on this roster. It's not to say like you can't start a John Bostic, but I think on a good defense, on a good linebacking core, Bostic is a backup, not a starter. Now, Washington for a lot of games in 2020 ended up basically playing just two linebackers for the bulks of those games and just leaning heavily on the defensive linemen and the secondary guys. You don't want to be in that position. You want to have a linebacker who can really wreak havoc and who is dependable, who can cover tight ends, who can make you feel like, all right, it's not that we're just great with the defensive line and then solid on the back end. It's that we feel good about all three levels of our defense. And for a good chunk of 2020, you weren't able to say that. Kyle Van Noy, I believe, would help. And I would love for Washington to be able to sign him off him being cut by the Dolphins. He, of course, would have to want to come here. That is true. But there is that connection with Mayhew. And there very clearly is opportunity. You know, this is not a situation where it's like, well, you're going to have to battle for every snap that you get. This is kind of like, well, uh, right now as things set up, you're no worse than the number two linebacker on this team. The only guy you'd put maybe ahead of Van Noy would be Cole Holcomb. And even that is a debate. And like I said, there's so many ways you can use Kyle Van Noy. That position flex. He can be an inside linebacker. He can be an edge rusher. He can do a lot of things. He was a captain for the Dolphins in 2020. He was a staple on Bill Belichick's defenses in recent seasons. In fact, a lot of people think he may end up going back to New England off parting ways with the Miami Dolphins. You look at Washington and what's coming up here with free agency. So Holcomb is, of course, under contract. John Bostic has one season left 
on his contract. Washington re-signed him to a two-year deal last offseason. You do have someone like a Kalik Hudson, who Washington took in the fifth round of the 2020 draft out of Michigan, but he barely played on defense last year. Kalik Hudson did lead Washington in special team snaps in 2020, but he played on just 5% of Washington's defensive snaps this past year. Kevin Pierre-Lewis is a free agent. He signed just a one-year contract last offseason. And yes, Ruben Foster is a free agent as well. I know Ruben's name has come up lately. Uh, remember, Washington last April did not exercise the fifth-year option in Ruben's rookie contract, making him an unrestricted free agent for this offseason. And look, with Ruben, I, I mean, I kind of feel like with Ruben Foster, there's going to be always this thing of, man, if only he had stayed healthy. You know, it feels like we've said that about a lot of guys with this team over the years. Ruben Foster, I mean, he's never played a single snap of football for Washington. He suffered that badly injured left knee in May 2019. Remember, it was the first organized team activity practice, the first OTA practice for Washington in that 2019 offseason. And he suffers a torn left ACL, LCL, MCL, and nerve damage. It's not just that he hit the trifecta. He hit for the triple crown when it came to the CLs, ACL, LCL, MCL. It's that he also suffered nerve damage. I mean, that's about as bad as it gets, right? I guess short of amputation, you know, short of what Alex Smith went through, torn ACL, LCL, and MCL, and nerve damage for Reuben Foster at that first OTA practice in May 2019. Last season, Reuben spent the whole season on injured reserve. Washington put him on the reserve slash injured list in the cut down to 53, and that was it. We did not see Ruben the entire year. And the thing that was significant about that, remember, was when you put a guy on IR prior to the start of the season, when you put a guy on IR in the cut down to 53, he's not eligible to be activated off IR during that season. So it's not just that Washington put Ruben on IR to begin the year. Washington did that knowing Ruben was not going to be able to be activated off IR during the season. So it's like Washington knew going into the season, this guy's got no chance to play this year. It's not It's not even worth it to have him on our 53-man roster and then put him on IR so we could maybe activate him later in the year. Don't ignore that. That is telling. That is significant when it comes to what Reuben Foster is trying to come back from. And remember this too, he had an injury history prior to that badly injured left knee in May 2019. Reuben in his 2017 rookie season played in just 10 games due to a high ankle sprain and a rib injury. So no way can you count on Reuben Foster. After quarterback, I think linebacker is the position group on Washington most in need of being upgraded this offseason. And it's not just about getting, you know, Ron's DC version of Luke Keekley. It's about adding multiple bodies to that spot, multiple starting caliber bodies to that linebacking core. I think Kyle Van Noy would be part of a fix at linebacker, and I hope that Washington is in on him. Tuesday night, not a good night for our lovable, huggable basketball team. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Smith. The Washington Wizards, they got handled, and they got handled hard. A 125-111 loss to the Memphis Grizzlies at Capital One Arena. This is now two consecutive losses for the Wizards, who, remember, fell at the Boston Celtics on Sunday night, 111-110, a game that was a total gut wrench of a loss. Wizards overcame an 11-point third quarter deficit, but remember, blew a five-point lead with 46.9 seconds left in the fourth quarter. First time, by the way, the Wizards have lost two consecutive games since February 10th and 12th. So the play, of course, has been better But the last two games, you collapsed in that loss at the Celtics, and then you really got shredded by the Grizzlies at Capital One Arena 
on Tuesday night. Wizards now 10-7 and since their 3-12 and start. And this game against the Grizzlies, it just wasn't that competitive. The Wizards never led in the second half. In fact, trilled by double digits for all but less than a minute in the second half. Wizards were up by eight in the first quarter at 18-10. That allowed the Grizzlies to go on an 83-52 run for a 93-70 third quarter lead. You were up by eight, and then you allowed the Grizzlies to go on a run during which they outscored you by 31 points. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes. Thank you, Stephen A. Now look, the Grizzlies are good, okay? I mean, the record is 16 and 15. I know that may not sound great, but in the ultra-competitive Western Conference, that's not nothing. And Memphis recently has had some monster wins. The Grizzlies won at the Houston Rockets on Sunday by 29, 113-84. The Grizzlies beat the LA Clippers last Thursday by 28, 122-94. So Memphis can play, no doubt. And play Memphis did at cap one last night. The Wizards defense was back to being bad. Scott Brooks during his virtual post-game press conference said the Wizards did not exhibit enough physicality. Uh, true that, as we like to say. Wizards allowed the Grizzlies to score 71 first half points. Wizards allowed Memphis to shoot 49.5% from the field, including 13 to 29 on threes. And the Wizards got scorched by John ja Morant. And a lot of teams get scorched by John ja Morant. I get that. But he picked them apart, okay? I mean, he put on a clinic when it comes to playing point guard and being a scoring point guard, who also, of course, is an outstanding passer. Morant last night, 2 of 3 on threes, 9 of 15 on twos, 11 of 14 on free throws. He finished with 35 points, 10 assists versus 4 turnovers, and 5 rebounds. Just a complete dissection of the Wizards' feeble defense by John Morant. Wizards also had trouble with DeAnthony Melton off the Grizzlies bench. He went five of six on threes in just the first half. And the Wizards had a major turnover problem on Tuesday night to 22 Wizards turnovers to the Grizzlies 11. The Wizards had double the turnovers that Memphis had. And the two biggest culprits were the Wizards' two best players, Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. Beal, a rare off night for him in this loss to Memphis. Just one for four on threes, six turnovers, and a plus-minus rating of minus 25. Uh, finished with 23.6 rebounds and five assists. I mean, it's saying something about Beal now, right? That he gives you 23, six, and five, and it's an off night. Uh, but it was, you know? Like, we're used to Bradley Beal scoring 30-plus. Bradley Beal is the leading scorer in the NBA, even with that performance on Tuesday night. He's averaging 32.9 points per game, but just 23 in this loss to the Grizzlies. And like I said, six turnovers for Beal. That's been a thing with him this year. He's committing turnovers. So he's averaging five turnovers per game. People don't talk about that a lot. Really would like to see that come down by at least a turnover per game. If not, you know, a turnover and a half to two turnovers per game, like five turnovers for a non-point guard per game. That's way too much. I know Beal's got the ball in his hands a lot, but I just, I would like to see that number come down. But yeah, look, he's not going to score 46 every night. I get that. Uh, and look, if he does score 46, the Wizards probably lose because we talked about that off that game on Sunday night, that loss at the Celtics, right? Beal drops 46 at Boston. The Wizards lose 11th consecutive loss for Beal when scoring at least 40 points. Longest such streak in NBA history. But Beal had the six turnovers last night and Russell Westbrook had eight turnovers last night, including seven in the first half. So Beal and Westbrook combined for 14 of the Wizards' 22 turnovers. Way too many, okay? And I don't know. It's like, well, Westbrook, all he commits turnovers. I know, but eight, seven in the first half, way too many. And by the way, he missed a bunch of free throws too. Westbrook just four, nine 
on free throws on Tuesday night. Now, look, it wasn't all bad from Westbrook. Uh, he did actually shoot the three well, three of seven on threes. Did finish with 23 points, 15 assists, six rebounds, and three steals. And in fact, Westbrook started the game off on fire. Westbrook scored or assisted on 20 of the Wizards' first 21 points. So it was not just some like total nothing effort from Russell Westbrook, but again, eight turnovers, too many. And if you're wondering, well, how does this compare to how Westbrook usually plays? Russell Westbrook, as we speak on this Wednesday, is averaging six and a half turnovers per 100 possessions this season. That's his worst such rate in four years. That's the second worst such rate of his career. You know, Brooks talked about this during his virtual postgame press conference last night. The turnovers for Westbrook have got to come down by at least a turnover per game. Like, you know he's going to commit some, but he's committing too many. I mean, you know, eight last night, you can't have that. Seven in the first half? Like, no, uh, that can't be the deal. And I mentioned the free throws. I know free throws, that's not really something people get all caught up in. You know, Russell Westbrook is shooting 59.5% on his free throws this year. Can we do a little better than that? I mean, it's not like he's been an atrocious free throw shooter in his career. 59.5%? I mean, can we not be like in the 70s at least? Like, is that asking for too much? I mean, he's more than capable. So not a great night for Beal. A very mixed night for Russell Westbrook. Way too many turnovers. It was a bad night for Rui Hachimura. He did nothing in this game. Two of seven shooting, just seven points, two rebounds in 25 minutes, 19 seconds as a starter. Had the game's worst plus minus rating of minus 26. Scott Brooks, during his virtual postgame presser, said at point blank, we need a better Rui. Uh, you do. Uh, he's better than that. He gave you next to nothing last night. Davies Bertans didn't do much. Just two of five on threes off the bench. 11 points, five rebounds. And that was disappointing too because Bertans had a very good weekend. Uh, Bertans, it was funny. He missed that win at Denver last Thursday night due to right knee soreness. Is back for the win over Minnesota at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. And Bertans off the bench in that game, five of 11 on threes. Then the next night, the loss at Boston, Berton's off the bench 5-9 and nine on three. So he goes 10-20 on threes over the weekend. If you're like, okay, finally maybe starting to find himself. Maybe that game off, that game that he missed at the Nuggets, did him some good in terms of the right knee, which maybe was a bigger issue than we thought. Well, he's back to being, you know, largely a non-factor in that game last night. Like I said, uh, just 2-5 of five on threes. Another thing, too, is Brooks essentially benched Garrison Matthews and Mo Wagner. Two guys who've been starting but not necessarily playing a lot. Uh, they got sat, and they got sat for a while in that game last night. Matthew started but played for just nine minutes, four seconds. Wagner started, played for just 11 minutes, three seconds. Denny Avdia, who played for less than seven minutes off the bench in the loss at Boston, was back to playing for quite a bit last night. He continues to come off the bench, but he played for nearly 26 minutes, and he played pretty well, actually. Two of four on threes, 10 points, and seven rebounds. And the Wizards got another good game from our pal Rolo. Robin Lopez, rather quietly, has been productive for the Wizards over the last few weeks here. Robin Lopez last night, 14 points, 6 of 6 shooting in 13.54 off the bench. But the defense was not close to being good enough, and the Wizards lose a game, again, to a pretty good Memphis team, but just the fact that this game really wasn't very competitive, especially in that second half, disappointing. So the Wizards now 13-20. and overall on the year. And another stiff test is coming. You know, the Wizards schedule has stiffened here in recent weeks. That trip out West, that was not easy. That's why going three and one with those wins at Portland, the Lakers and Denver were so impressive. And that was so good. Like you love to see that. Like Wizards actually beat some good teams, but here you are. I mean, you played at Boston on Sunday night 
Uh, you were home to Memphis last night and you are home to the Clippers Thursday night at seven. And then look what's after that at Memphis, uh, the following Wednesday night at eight, home to Philadelphia, home to Milwaukee, home to Milwaukee. So it's not easy right now. Wizards are in a tough portion of their schedule. They got the break coming up where they don't play from March 5th through March 9th. But still, you know, with, with that three and 12 start, it's like you got to get your wins, even in the lowly Eastern Conference. Like you do need to win some games here to try to make the postseason. And uh, Wizards have lost back-to-back games for the first time in a few weeks. All right, big game for the Capitals tonight at the Boston Bruins at 7. Caps then will be at the Bruins again on Friday night at 7. And very pleased to welcome on to the Al Goldie podcast right now, Caps insider Tarek El-Bashir of The Athletic DC. Tarek, it's great to talk to you, man. How are you? Hey, Al. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's very nice to have you on. So, it's been awesome to see the Caps do as they've done so far. I mean, 12-5-4, and four, especially when you factor in all the absences that the team has had to deal with. Are you surprised that the Caps have this good of a record, You know, especially given those absences? Or, or did you kind of always expect this team to be really good this season? I'm surprised, yes. Um, I, I wouldn't say totally caught off guard because you know this is a team that has great depth and has had great depth for a number of years. And they've been able to overcome... You know, um, an injury here or there. What what I think has really jumped out to me is that they were able to not only tread water but just keep collecting points with all of that adversity they had, and that that was a, a heck of a lot. I mean, to just just rewind to even before the season began. Henrik Lundqvist was supposed to be their number one goaltender. Yeah, and they lost him to a heart ailment. You know, you know, thank God he's doing well, and you know he's posting videos and he's on the path to recovery. But that was supposed to be your goaltender. Battling with Ilya Samsonov, and then two games of the season, you've lost Henrik and you've lost Sammy to COVID, and then you lose, you know, um, um, by by um, uh, tracing, you know, Alex Ovechkin and Dmitry Orlov, and then Kuzi comes down with COVID, and then Eller goes out for four games, and then Justin Schultz goes out for four games, and then Tom Wilson gets banged up. I mean, it was like at one point it was the Hershey Bears. I mean, it was the whole taxi squad. There was no taxi squad. They were all in D.C. Um, so, you know, the fact that they have... Oh, and B.J. Monacek, a goaltender who had never started an NHL game, is now up there amongst rookie goaltenders in terms of wins, and his numbers are getting better. Um, so the fact that they are leading, in my opinion, the toughest division in hockey right now, um, uh, it's surprising. Uh, but, you know, I think it's a testament to to the depth that general manager um, Brian McClellan has, has built over the last few years here. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you've had T.J. Oshie playing center and at times as the, as the, as the second-line center, I mean, it really has been amazing. When he got to North Dakota, he couldn't even crack that lineup as a center. <laughs> he's in the National Hockey League. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, just totally bizarre. And the funny thing about it is he's getting better. He's actually getting better. I mean, there's, there's no, he's a right wing. I mean, he's never going to play center full-time in this league. But like Vitek Bonacek, you know, these are really good players who getting some reps. They're starting to look pretty good. I mean, Yoshi can win a face-off if, if needed. He can he can have support down low and look pretty good as center. So one of the more interesting things with this team has been the goaltending situation. Ilya Samsonov in that 3-2 win at New Jersey on Sunday afternoon is the cap starting goaltender for the first time since January 17th. As you referenced, he missed a lot of time due to COVID-19 protocols, then had four starts at Hershey, which I thought was interesting, especially given that he didn't exactly kill it for Hershey. But we've seen a ton of Vitek Vanacek. He started 16 of the Caps' last 18 games. 
Has Vanacek simply surpassed Samsonov as the Caps' number one goaltender at this point, or is it not that simple? Uh, for now, I would say for now he's the number one goaltender, um, uh, and Samsonov is going to have to is going to have to push and force his way back into the conversation. I mean, you never want to blame a guy for getting a you know potentially deadly disease in the middle of a global pandemic, but if you take a big picture view, he also let down the team last year when he had his ATV accident in Russia and wasn't able to participate in the restart, and then um, and then you know he gets sick this year and. Uh, and you're right, those four stars down there, I, I think that was, that was, um, uh, a pretty good indication that, you know, maybe, I, this is me just kind of speculating here, maybe he wasn't 100% from the injury, he needed some extra time down there. That was a lot more than I think most people expected him to, to, to have in the minors before coming up. And right now, I mean, it certainly looks to me, and even Peter Laviolette said that, uh, said after practice in, in Boston this week, that, Vitek's the guy, and Sam's got to knock him off that perch, which is a great situation to have in D.C. I mean, you want to have two young, hungry goaltenders. Like, you don't want them sniping at each other, and you want them to kind of get along, but you want there to, you want there to be competition. Competition is good for pro sports. Samsonov has been kind of like the chosen one. Like, he's been talked about as the goaltender of the future for yeah. years. You know, Vanacek, I know he had success at Hershey, but man, he was there for a while and, and it never felt like they were as high on him as they were on Samsonov. What has been kind of the organizational outlook on Vanacek? Like, do they think he can be a true number one NHL goaltender? So, he came over very raw. I mean, for one thing, he didn't speak a word of English when he showed up in 2015 in South Carolina in the ECHL. I mean, Imagine being a Czech kid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I talked to Spencer Carberry the other day. Uh, he's the Hershey Bears coach. He was the, the South Carolina Stingrays coach back then. He was like, we have to get him an apartment. We have to get him a driver's license. We have to get him a car. We have to help him shop for food. Like, he couldn't do anything. So, so he's, it's been a long project. It's been a project. I mean, this whole organization has been slowly but surely building this kid up. Now, the one thing I would say is he's had opportunities, but he's always been recruited over. They like they've always always gone out. Like even when it was finally his turn in line, they went out and got Henrik Lundqvist. And you know, last year Samsonov came up and he didn't come up, so he's had a lot of disappointments too. So um, you know, it's been four years in the minor leagues. He's the I mean, I know this is a cliche, but he's from what I'm told the first guy in the rink, the last guy to leave. He just is a grinder, and uh, he's put in his time. Sammy Samsonov has a higher ceiling. He's a better athlete. There's more athleticism. There's more explosion. When he goes down and gets back up, it's with a big pop. And he's got size. He's six foot three. I mean, when you're a goaltender, size matters. When you go down into your butterfly, if you're six three, you know, your toes are blocking a lot of extra space. Bonacek's generously listed at six two. He's not six two. Um, uh, so, I do think Samsonov is still kind of the golden child, and they really want to see him succeed, and they kind of need him to succeed because the way this – it's almost like having a, a good quarterback on a rookie contract. You kind of need this dude to come through for you at $900,000. Um, but right now, Bonacek has – he saved the season to this point. I mean, who knows where they would be if he didn't – and look, he's, he's not in the Vesna Trophy conversation. I mean, his numbers are okay. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the advanced analytics – he definitely should have made some saves that he did not. That said, 
where would they be if this guy was not in there, yep. you know, helping them rack up wins? I mean, the philosophy has been let's outscore the other team, and they've had to, you know, they've given up pretty much three goals a game. Um, but last thing, Bonacek has gotten better at every single stage of his career. Every level that he's gone, he's worked his butt off, and he's gotten better. That's happening here. If you're Samsonov, you're looking over there going, this dude, this dude's for real, and he's working hard. I better get my uh, my my act into gear. So, again, getting back to the competition, you want those two young guys pushing each other. Talking with Capitals insider Tarek El Bashir of the Athletic DC. Big game for the Caps on Wednesday night at the Boston Bruins at seven. How would you describe Alex Ovechkin's season so far? Disjointed, just just disjointed. Uh, I, you know. People are all asking me, ah, is he slowing down? Is this finally the year that he drops off? Al, how many years have we asked that question? I know. It looks really stupid at the end of the year. I know. I, I'm, I'm not going to be the first guy to go out go out on that limb. I'm not doing it. I, I, I did it once. He had some years back in the mid-2000, like 2010, where he was like in the 30-goal range. I, I wrote him off on this big front-page Washington Post article. I hope no one ever reads that article because he came back the next year and dropped 50, right? So I'm not going to count out Alex. It's been a tough year. You know, he, it, and it takes longer as you get older, 35 years old, to kind of get ramped up and get up into, get up speed. Um, you know, he had the, the 10 days on the COVID list. That's like, that's like, you know, going through a little bit of an off season again. Yeah. And then there's, then there was that seven day break between games. That wasn't their fault. That was when the Flyers had their breakout. And um, the captain had games for seven days because of it. That was another little bit of a um, lull, in, in, which is not good for 35-year-old legs. You want, you're a 35-year-old. You want to keep moving. You want to keep at it. Um, so I'm not overly concerned. Um, you know, I, I think like with everybody, the, the team is finally kind of back to where it should be in terms of having all of its pieces in place. It uh, looks like if Giddy Kuznetsov's going to be back in the lineup, so he's going to have a you know a, a, a top six center to play with. Let's see where he's at in a couple of weeks. Uh, I mean, I, I think just because of how this first you know month and a half has gone, he's not going to he's not going to score a goal a game this year. I mean, it's probably going to, going to look like a bit of a down year at the end of the year uh, when you look at his numbers. But you know, if you asked him, he would say, as long as I'm scoring goals in the playoffs, I'm good. Now, on the flip side of that is Nicholas Backstrom, team leading ten goals. Team leading 15 assists. What has stood out to you watching him so far this year? He came into camp in incredible shape. Um, now, so just to tell your uh, listeners a little funny story, my first interview with him back in 2006, I kind of indirectly called him Chubby. <laughs> and <laughs> this is when he was like a first-round star <laughs> in the making. And the look he shot me, I thought he was about to jump over the, the little table that we were, and this is a sit down long interview. Um, look, he, he's, he's probably, there's all, probably always been a little bit of extra conditioning that he could do, and he usually works his way into great shape a month into the season. I feel like he started there this year, and mm-hmm. maybe that was the responsibility of signing that huge contract last year. You know, he went from six million dollars to nine million dollars. Maybe he knew he had to, you know, kind of bring it. And as you get older, you know, there's less things going on in your life. You know, out distractions. You're you're married. You got kids. You got a routine. You know, you're more likely to kind of put in that extra work in the off season as opposed to hanging out on the golf course or, or you know. Uh, on a boat, and um, so I, he got off to a great start. But you know, from a technical standpoint, he's shooting the puck more for sure. He's going to the net more for sure. Uh, in, against the Devils on Sunday, 
there was a play on the power play. The the Caps started doing a little bit of rotation, a little more rotation than usual. Ovechkin was at the goal post, uh, was at the back post. Carlson was in the OV office, and Backstrom was now at the top where Carlson usually is. Backstrom could have passed to any one of, like, four dudes, and he took a hard shot off the crossbar. He doesn't do that in years past. He he's feeling it right now. He he was thinking to himself, "Hey, I got the I got the touch right now. Things are rolling for me. Let me take this shot." So he's gone from pass first to shoot first, and that's a great thing for the Caps. He's been outstanding, no doubt. Yeah, no, definitely. While we're talking Caps forwards, I think one of the other funny things about the season so far is the frequency with which Peter Laviolette has shuffled his lines. Even when the Caps have been at or near full strength in terms of available players. Like, it's one thing, obviously, when guys are out, but it seems like even when the team is mostly healthy, you know, we've seen things like Backstrom as the third-line center, you know, Connor Sheary as a top-line winger, that that kind of a thing. What do you make of all the line shuffling by Laviolette so far? He's looking for the right mix. Look, here's a new coach who's coming in with a new system. Um, it was a truncated training camp, 10 days, no exhibition games. Um, I mean, he met some of these dudes on day one of training camp. Hey, how's it going? I'm Peter. Nice to meet you. I mean, there, there were no meetings. I mean, there wasn't, it wasn't a normal off season. Normally you got 17 days to kind of, you know, start piecing your lines together. Who's playing well with whom? You know, who's going to add a little bit of speed to that line? We're going to add a little puck retrieval grit to that line. And then you have, you know, seven preseason games to, to kind of tinker around. He didn't have any of that. The preseason games have been this first, you know, the first two weeks of the regular season. Um, so I think that's part of it, is he's still trying to find the right mix. His ideas are different than previous coaches. My feeling from looking at his previous teams and from looking at what he's done here over this first six weeks, he likes balance. You know, he would he would rather have, this is going to sound weird, but he would rather have two second lines and two third lines than have a stacked first line and then kind of uh, in the next few lines. So you know what I mean? He, mm-hmm. he would rather balance it out. He would like to have... Three, three lines that, that are threats, a top nine as opposed to a top six. Uh, so that's why he's kind of been, been tinkering around, trying to find that right mix. And look, these guys, this core group, they've been together for a long time. Everyone has played with everybody. Um, the upside to all of that is, oh, first of all, it's, I think it's one of the most overrated things in all sports is, or in all hockey are line combinations. I know everyone likes to put it out on Twitter here. And by the second period, it's all, it's all messed up anyway. If you've had a bunch of penalties or someone took a shot off his foot, I mean, it, it, you kind of have to mix things up. But I, I think the upside, getting back to what I was, the, the point I was making before, was is that when you get to the postseason and you start playing the same team over and over and over, which you're doing right now, now you're able to start really playing with those lines, and it's not like you're throwing. Ovi with Eller for the first time. Yeah. If that's, if that's the line you want to, those are the two guys you want to have to get away from a defensive pair. They're not going, Hey, Lars, right? Hey, yeah, Alex. Yeah, okay. Let, let, let's do this. They've already played together. There's already some chemistry built in. Let's talk defensemen. I think my favorite fact from the cap season is this with all of the absences, all the injuries, Zidane Chara in his age 43 season has played in all 21 of the caps games. Is that more a credit to him or a statement about what's happened around him? <laughs> I, I think he was going to play all 21 games anyway. Oh, really? Okay. I, they signed him. So he left Boston because they said, hey, you're going to be a part-time player this year. we got some young studs that are going to come in. And you know you know who could really use Zidane Char right now? The Boston Bruins. They are, they are 
decimated on the left side of their D. And that's but something. They made their decision. He made his choice. He came to Washington. There were no guarantees. I talked to McClellan while, you know, when the deal was coming. There were no guarantees. It was, hey, you show up in shape and ready to go, and you ramp up real quick at 43 years old. I think he's going to be 44 here pretty soon. And you'll play. And what happened was he came in, and he pushed Jonas Stiegenthaler out of the lineup. Uh, he was just, he was, he was what they were hoping they were going to be getting. Um, <clears throat> what I'm curious to know is, I mean, with all these minutes, there hasn't been a sign of any wear and tear. I just wonder if when we get onto that back half of the season, let's say the Capitals are comfortably in the, you know, I mean, I know they're in first place now, but let's say they have a little bit of a lead, first place, second place, the, the, the division's kind of broken down where, okay, this is a playoff team. You're not, we're not worried about getting overtaken. Do they start maybe dialing back on his minutes a little bit? Because he, he plays really hard minutes, too, Al. He's not just out there, um, you know, twirling around. Yeah. He leaves team in penalty kill minutes. Those minutes kill your legs. The starts, the stops, the blocks. You know, you're chasing around the other team's best players for, for two minutes, you know, or a minute and a half. I mean, it's those are hard minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like you say, Jonas Siegenthaler, they acquired Trevor Van Riemsdyk during the offseason. And, and these guys, they're like ghosts. I mean, you don't see them. I mean, Chara is out there game in and game out. It's it's really been remarkable to see that. You know, so, so Siegenthaler is a young player they believe in. Um, he's got a future here in Washington. Like like other players, you know, in this organization, he got recruited over. This is a win-now season for the Capitals. They have to win right now. They can't teach Jonas Stiegenthaler to be a little tougher around the net or to be a little better positionally. And defense is one of the, one of the, the one of the positions like goaltender where nuance and reading the play and kind of details are, are a little bit harder, takes a little bit longer to kind of get really comfortable as opposed to like a forward position. So he's still a big part of this. Trevor Van Reed was like, I kind of feel bad for the dude. I think he just kind of got caught up in. So, you know, well, that, when when the free agent market opens, you have your list of guys. Okay, is he going to go for eight hundred? Are you going to go for? Okay, get him. And they went shopping and they got the guys they wanted. And then two days later, it's like, hey, is Char still out there? <laughs> Wait a minute, we, we, but we already got Van Riemsdyk for the right side. And see, they got Van Riemsdyk also. Wonder they weren't sure. Nick Jensen hadn't been great to this point. They weren't sure what was going to happen there. It looked like he might be the odd man out on the right side. And then he comes in, and what they find out is his skating, Nick Jensen's skating, lends itself perfectly to Peter Laviolette's system. Uh, his system of, you know, um, Demon carrying the puck, you know, getting up in the play, uh, you know, putting the putting the pressure on the other team with your legs. So TBR is going to get his chance. Someone's going to get a, you know, you know, knock on wood. Someone's going to get an injury. You know, something's going to come up where he's going to get in. But I do feel c- kind of bad for him. So I think he probably thought he was going to, have a full-time job, and it has not materialized. Yeah, I mean, I think most of us thought that until that Chara signing happened. Regarding the top defense pair, John Carlson, Brendan Dillon, have those guys lived up to what they're supposed to be, in your opinion? I think so. Um, I think Dillon's had a really good season to this point. He is what he is. You know, big, strong, tough, hard around the net, hard to play against. Um, uh, you know, will drop the gloves when he needs to. Um, you know, he's not a fighter, but he's, he's rugged. You know, he's big and he can get, and he can get around the ring pretty good for a guy of that size. Uh, John Carlson, I thought his first little bit, he looked like he was kind of searching for his game, but he's been really good lately. And remember, he plays so much, so much. I mean, he's, he's in every 
He's in, you know, he's on every power play. He's out there on the penalty kill. He's out there against the other team's best players. He's out there in the last minute. I mean, he just plays so much. Um, I, I know fans can kind of give him a hard time because he's not perfect on every single, you know, but he, he's out there for half the game already. He's like 25 minutes a night. Um, you're going to be out there for goals against when you play that much. The other team gets paid too. Um, like, is, is he in that Norris, tro- early Norris trophy conversation like he was last year? That, not really, but he's in that top six, seven, you know, in, in terms of uh, D-men right now. So, uh, like I said, he's been getting better, and I would expect him to have a good second half. Final question for you. So the Caps record is very good, no doubt, 12-5-4, and four, especially when you factor in, like we discussed, the absences slash injuries. But if you do want to play skeptic, you know, you could say, well, six of the 12 wins are one-goal wins. The Caps' goal differential isn't overly impressive, just plus four on the year. Are the Caps as good as their record suggests? Like, as you think about that 21 games into the season, what strikes you? Yeah, I, I would say maybe not. I, I would say that some of the underlying numbers aren't great either. Um, that said, it all goes back to that first month where everyone was coming in and out of the lineup and you had, you know, the taxi squad, you know, as, as you know, permanent residents in your, in your lineup. I mean, um, I, my feeling here is, they're on a six one and one run here. Some I would I would say you know, let's go back three or four games. That's when I thought they started to really play well and started to look like they were they were competing and reacting instead of just thinking and kind of playing slow while trying to figure out Laviolette system and get comfortable with what they were supposed to be doing. It looks to me like they're playing and not reacting now. To me, the next fifteen games or so are going to be a really good barometer of how good this team really is. I feel like they kind of. They kind of got some results early on that maybe they didn't deserve. And also, they've beaten some pretty – they've beaten up on the bad teams too, right? They've beaten up on the Sabres and the mm-hmm. Devils. Um, so that's something else to keep an eye out for. But you know what? The schedule is what the schedule is. Your division – you know, opponents are your division opponents in this weird year. Um, so they've set themselves up for what I think is going to be a pretty good tell of who they are here over the next two weeks. Yeah, no doubt. And a huge test Wednesday night at Boston, followed by another one Friday night at Boston. Tarek El-Bashir, Capitals insider, The Athletic DC, a must-read, a must-follow if you're a Caps fan. Always love talking Caps with you, Tarek. Thanks so much. Give me a call anytime, Al. Let us get to the Nationals right now. No Grapefruit League game on Tuesday. Nats back at it on Wednesday. Miami Marlins at 105. Nats then will face the New York Mets Thursday afternoon at 110. And then the St. Louis Cardinals Friday evening at 605. Now, there was Nats news on Tuesday, and I want to get into a few things here with you right now. So first of all, things do continue to trend well when they come to Max Scherzer and actually also Juan Soto. So Max Scherzer is dealing with this sprained left ankle that happened a couple of weeks before spring training got going. He threw to live batters on Monday for the first time this spring, scheduled to throw a live bullpen session on Wednesday, barring any setbacks. It will be Max starting for the Nats Friday evening against the Cardinals. That per the pitching coach, Jim Hickey. With Juan Soto, uh, so Soto fouled a ball off his right foot. Looks like he's going to be making his spring training debut uh, later today, Wednesday here against the Marlins. So good news there. No one really has been that concerned about these ailments with Max and Juan, but of course they are two very important players. So I think it's good to be mindful of where they are with their health. I thought though the most interesting thing that was said at Nats camp on Tuesday was this. The hitting coach Kevin Long did one of these virtual Zoom pressers and he revealed that the Nats third baseman Carter Keboom 
underwent laser eye surgery this past offseason. And I love this quote from Long. He says, he, as in Kiboom, did some stuff with his eyes, and he's seeing the ball a lot better. He's not squinting, end quote. Gee, you think? I mean, I don't know. Your eyes, don't they kind of matter when it comes to the sport of baseball and recognizing pitches and trying to put a wooden bat on a ball? And if you're squinting, isn't that kind of sort of a problem? I, I just, I cannot get over how often this happens in major pro sports with guys haven't gotten their eyes fixed. You know, I mean, I, first of all, teams, I'm, I'm almost positive, they give you eye checks, vision checks, season in, season out, like when you have your physicals, don't they do that? And if you have issues, how are those issues not like immediately addressed? I mean, laser eye surgery, players can certainly afford it. Teams can certainly afford it. I mean, players probably don't even have to pay for it half the time. How is this a thing that this guy needed laser eye surgery and had it, had it, had not had it? How is this a thing that he was squinting, apparently, according to Kevin Long? And that wasn't fixed like right away. I just, I could not get over that when I saw that yesterday. But you know what? Maybe this ends up being the thing that gets Carter Keeboom going. Look, Carter Keeboom last season was a major disappointment. First of all, he played in just 33 of the Nats' 60 games. He actually got optioned to the Nats' alternate training site in Fredericksburg, Virginia, last August 26th. Now, he was recalled on September 5th, but he ended up uh, then being put on the 10-day injured list in late September due to a left wrist contusion. And just the fact that he got optioned, remember there was no minor league season last year. So that's essentially the equivalent of being demoted to the minors. Carter Keeboom got demoted last year and he struggled. 133 plate appearances. He had a batting average of just 202. He had a slugging percentage of 212. That's a problem, man. When the slugging percentage is nearly the same as your batting average, okay? That's not good. It's not supposed to work that way. Now, what was interesting about Keeboom's slash line last year is that he had a 344 on base percentage. He actually drew 17 walks last year. So he went 202 with the batting average, 212 with the slugging percentage, but 344 with the on base percentage. So even with his squinting, he still was able to draw 17 walks. So, you know, who knows what ends up happening, uh, this coming year with that. So that was kind of odd, but yeah, no doubt he's got to be better as a hitter. And this is very much a big season for Carter Keeble. You know, the Nats took him with the 28th overall pick in the 2016 draft. Remember what happened with Keeboom in 2019? He struggled during a brief stint at the major league level. Actually got off to like a great start in terms of like his first game. He actually homered in his first game. It was a game against the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park. And he went deep. Actually went deep off the ex-Nat Craig Stammen in that game. And then two days later, he had another home run. So he, like his first series as a major league player went well. And then from that point onward, he struggled. Two of 27 with three walks versus 11 strikeouts. He had a number of defensive issues at shortstop. Remember, he was playing shortstop in 2019 due to Trey Turner having suffered that broken right index finger in early April. And so it just did not go well for Keeboom in 19. Last year, we're told in the offseason, well, he's going to be the everyday third baseman. He ends up not being the everyday third baseman. We almost from the get-go see a lot of his Drupal Cabrera. And like I said, Keeboom struggles, ends up being demoted. And it just ends up being, in a lot of ways, just a bad second season for Carter Keeboom. So here we now are now, you're number three. It's again being said he's going to be the everyday third baseman. The Nats did not do really much of anything in the offseason to try to bring in competition for third base. It's not like you don't have any other options for third base, but it certainly seems, again, like Carter Keeboom's spot to lose. And the Nats really need him to rise up, grab that third base job, and squeeze it by the throat, make it his. Because here's the deal with the Nats. 
They are, to me, an extremely high-variance team for 2021, i.e., if you told me the Nats win 90 games, I could certainly see that happening. But conversely, if you told me the Nats lose 90 games, I could see that happening. The Nats have a lot of 50-50 guys, a lot of guys who, if things go well, could be a part of another playoff caliber team. But the Nats also have a lot of guys who it's not that far-fetched to say they're not going to do all that well. You know, the Nats are relying on bounce-back years from Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber. The Nats are relying on Steven Strasburg to stay healthy. The Nats are relying on Patrick Corbin to rebound from what was a hideous 2020 for him. The Nats are relying on someone like a Daniel Hudson to be a key part of the bullpen of Hudson having been really bad in 2020. So there's a lot of reliance on guys who did not do well in 2020, but guys who you do know can do well because they have done well. But when it comes to Keyboom and someone else, Victor Robles, you're counting on guys who you know have talent, who you know have potential blossoming. And this to me is a huge deal with the offense, okay? I kind of frame it like this. Juan Soto, you know he's going to be great. Trey Turner, you feel very confident he's going to be very good. And guys like Jan Gomes, Starling Castro, they kind of are what they are, okay? So I think the four swing guys, the four wild cards when it comes to the Nats everyday position players, Carter Keboom, Victor Robles, Josh Bell, Kyle Schwarber. You need at least three out of those four guys to be good. You need at least three out of those four guys to wind up being in the positive, being in the affirmative, being in the bucket of, yeah, he was good. You know, either he bounced back or he really did take a big step forward as a batter in 2021. I don't think you're going to hit on all four. It would be lovely if you do, but it's probably asking for a lot. But you need three of the four to deliver in 2021. And it would be great, especially if two of those three were Robles and Keyboom. Because, you know, Schwarber's on a one-year contract. If it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. You know, Bell has great potential. He had a monster 2019 for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but it's not like he gave up a lot to get him from Pittsburgh. But Keyboom and Robles were two highly touted prospects, two young guys who you would love to be staples on the Nats for years to come. But you got to wonder, Robles has been underwhelming as a hitter each of the last two years. Keyboom has struggled over his first two seasons. Like, if each guy struggles again this year, you really do have to say, well, maybe it's not just like he's still developing. Maybe this is kind of just who he is as a major league player. So if Keyboom can take a big step forward as a batter and become a dependable major league third baseman, that is such a huge positive for the Nats in 2021. And maybe, just maybe, no longer squinting, having gotten this laser eye surgery, is going to prove the difference. Now, the other big thing with the Nats on Tuesday has to do with fans being allowed at Nationals Park. So made public on Tuesday was a letter from Dr. Christopher Rodriguez. Uh, Christopher Rodriguez is Washington, D.C.'s Director of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. And the letter was sent to the Nationals. And the letter stated that while D.C. has approved the Nats' request to hold games at Nationals Park. And you might say, well, why do the Nats need approval to hold games in Nats Park? Well, that's because with D.C., you still have this continued ban on large gatherings due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So the good news is that D.C. has said, yeah, you can go ahead and hold games in your home ballpark here. But D.C., at least for now, has denied the Nats request to allow a limited number of fans at games at Nationals Park. Now, that could change. Uh, Rodriguez in the letter did say that, quote, 
the opportunity to have fans will be re-examined as the public health metrics associated with COVID-19 evolve in the district. We are assessing the prevalence and impact of new, more transmissible viral strains on the progress we are making through our various public health measures, including our vaccination program, and expect to be able to get you some word on ticket sales for fans in the middle of the month. With you, we are looking forward to fans returning to Nats Park. Answers as to how many and when are still premature, end quote. So bottom line from the district to the Nats on Tuesday, yes, you can play your games at Nats Park, but no, at least not for now, can you have fans at Nationals Park. And I would just put it to you like this. I really hope that fans are allowed at Nationals Park and for the start of the season, okay? When the Nats begin their regular season, that big game Thursday night, April 1st against the New York Mets, what will almost certainly be, right, Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom, I want fans at Nationals Park. I'm not saying full capacity, okay? I'm not saying, you know, you don't have strict measures in terms of fan behavior and social distancing and wearing masks and all those things, okay? But the truth is, it's time to open some of this stuff up, all right? The rate of coronavirus cases in this country has plummeted in recent weeks. Coronavirus hospitalizations in this country have plummeted in recent weeks. You know, one of the ironies of this news coming out yesterday regarding D.C. and fans at Nationals Park is President Biden yesterday, did you catch this? He said that the U.S. expects to have enough COVID-19 vaccine doses for all adult Americans by the end of May. That's outstanding news. That's two months earlier than anticipated. Things are trending well with COVID-19 in this country. That doesn't mean that we're out of the woods. That doesn't mean that the pandemic is over. That doesn't mean that we have to just stop doing these mitigation efforts. Like, no, you got to stay vigilant. You got to stay smart. You can't be lax. You can't be a moron with this stuff. But things are going well. And to me, it's time to open this stuff up, okay? I mean, it's debatable, truly, whether all this shutdown stuff should have ever happened to begin with. That's going to be one of the really interesting things to look back upon with this pandemic is, did we handle this in the best possible way? Because there's a ton of evidence right now that says, no, we didn't. And it's not just about, you know, people not being vigilant enough with the mitigation measures. That's also about, you know, this thing of just like shut things down. It's like, no, we didn't have to do that. And it caused a lot of damage to the economy, you know, cost tens of millions of people their jobs. And it's debatable how much truly it helped in combating the virus. You know, you, you look at states that shut down a ton versus state and states that didn't shut down that much. And there's not that much difference between some of these states. Like it's, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done. And to me, there's a lot of sort of looking back and post-gaming that needs to be undertaken in terms of if, God forbid, we ever have to go through this again, and that's another conversation, how this happened, why this happened, and, you know, like in 2020, 2021, how is something like this taking place? But if, God forbid, something like this ever happens again, is it just shut things down? Or is it more, well, quarantine the sick, take care of the elderly, you know, deploy resources, especially into those communities that are most vulnerable? Like one of the things we know about COVID-19, sadly, has been that communities of color have suffered disproportionately. Because communities of color have a higher, have higher incidence of pre-existing conditions. So it's like, 
take care of the vulnerable, take care of the sick, take care of those communities most prone to suffering from this thing. But don't just say like, shut everything down, okay? And we can't open things back up until everything's taken care of again. So, you know, I just, I really hope that DC kind of comes to its senses on this. Again, I'm not saying be reckless. I'm not saying, you know, be stupid about this, but there's a middle ground between open everything up and no more masks and keep everything shut down until everyone on the planet has been vaccinated. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) there is a middle ground with stuff like this. And if you're curious about what's going on elsewhere, governors in other states with major league teams, including Pennsylvania and Ohio, have already announced plans to allow stadiums to have various amounts of fans. You don't need to have full capacity, even if it's just like, you know, 2,500 fans at Nationals Park. I mean, think about Nats Park. Think about any baseball, or at least many baseball stadiums. Outdoors, plenty of spacing for social distancing. Like, there's no reason you can't have at least some fans at Nationals Park in a safe manner. Nats fans deserve this. The Nationals as an organization deserve this. We as a country are doing a better job with the pandemic. And I really would like to think that Washington, D.C., it's going to end up allowing fans here. You know, it's been a tricky thing with the Nats and the district when it comes to the pandemic. DC has had very strict rules when it comes to the pandemic. And, and, you know, truth be told, like better to err on the side of caution than it is to err on the side of being reckless. Like no doubt, like this is a pandemic, you know, 500,000 plus people in this country have died from COVID-19. Like that cannot be ignored. That can never be forgotten. But remember what happened last July? where the Nats had to get clearance to play home games uh, at Nats Park in D.C. because D.C. had these very strict quarantine rules mandating a 14-day quarantine for anyone who had been exposed to someone who tested positive for COVID-19. So Muriel Bowser, the D.C. mayor, had to grant an exemption to the Nats for summer camp workouts and to allow intra-squad games at Nationals Park. But the quarantine rule had still been in effect And the clearance that the Nats got to play regular season games at Nationals Park took a while to get. The Nats started looking at other options for home games. This kind of gets forgotten. The Nats were entertaining the idea of playing home games in Fredericksburg, Virginia, at at the new single-A complex there, or even at the spring training facility in West Palm Beach, Florida. So it's not always been easy and smooth between the Nats and the district with the pandemic. Hopefully here, come opening night for the Nats against the Mets, April 1st, we have some fans at Nationals Park. And before we call it a show, let us salute the Georgetown Hoyas. Another win for the Hoyas on Tuesday night. Georgetown improves to 9-11 and overall, 7-8 and in the Big East, a 72-66 win over Xavier at McDonough Arena. Georgetown now 6-3 and since having four consecutive games postponed due to a positive COVID-19 test. And the Hoyas beat a pretty good Xavier team in this game on Tuesday night. Xavier came into the game 6-5. and in the Big East, Xavier came into the game number 50 in Division One in the NCAA's net ranking. So that's a win that improves the Hoyas' stock, no doubt. It's still an uphill climb regarding making the NCAA tournament. Uh, Georgetown, even with this game as we speak on this Wednesday, just 89th in Division One in the NCAA's net rankings, just 85th in Division One for KenPalm.com. But the Hoyas are climbing and the Hoyas are rallying here. I mean, seven and eight in the Big East, that's the second most wins Georgetown has had in conference play over the four seasons with Patrick Ewing as head coach. And Georgetown in this game on Tuesday night never trailed by more than one point. Uh, did let a 19-point second half lead at 55-36, get trimmed to three at 66-63, gave up a 27-11 Xavier run. But the Hoyas held Xavier to one made field goal 
over the final two minutes, 25 seconds. Hoy's defense was there on Tuesday night. Held Xavier to 32.4% shooting, including 9 of 34 on threes. Hoyas went 9 of 25 on threes. Uh, did struggle elsewhere, just 15 of 36 on twos, just 15 of 22 on free throws. But Georgetown won a second consecutive game despite Javon Blair, one of Georgetown's best players, not being that much of a factor. He came off the bench for that 68-60 win at DePaul on Saturday afternoon. Patrick Ewing saying after the game that Blair came off the bench due to a, quote, coach's decision. Last night, Blair comes off the bench again, and he's really not that good in the game. He went just 3 of 13 from the field, including 1 of 7 on threes, had just 12 points in 29 minutes as a reserve. But for a second straight game, Shootier Belay was Georgetown's best player, and he was a monster in the second half on Tuesday night. In just the second half, Belay, 4 of 6 on threes, 14 points, 6 rebounds, and 2 blocks. He, for the game, went 4 of 7 on threes, though just one of five on twos and just two of five on free throws, but he finished with 16 points, 11 rebounds, and three blocks in 32 minutes as a starter. Belay has been really good, really key for Georgetown over these last two games. Jamarco Pickett last night, two of six on threes, just four of 11 on twos, but 18 points, seven rebounds, had a huge putback and one layup, though he missed the free throw. Hoyas actually struggled on free throws, like I said, 15 to 22 for the game, uh, but Pickett with that big putback and one layup for a 68-63 Hoyas lead with 2.06 left in the second half. And the offensive rebound in that sequence was really impressive. Pickett getting that board in the paint over two Xavier players. So Belay was good. Pickett delivered. Uh, Kudis Wahab, the 6'11 Nigerian, 13 points on 6-7 shooting, 7 rebounds, including 4 offensive boards for him in this game. Look, like I said, it's still an uphill climb. It's still not easy, but at least Georgetown has made things interesting. I give Patrick Ewing credit. This has looked at times like a lost season for the Hoyas, But one of the things about Georgetown this year, and we've pointed this out on the podcast, Georgetown has been in a lot of these games. Like, if you look at the specifics of a good number of the Hoyas' losses this season, it's not like Georgetown's just getting, like, blown out of the water game in and game out. Georgetown actually very often has been in position to win games and just hasn't been able to make enough winning plays down the stretch. Well, it's starting to change here. Like, last night's actually a perfect example of that. You have a 19-point second-half lead. It gets trimmed to three. And then what happens? That aforementioned picket play where he gets the board in the paint over two Xavier players and one layup to put the Hoyas back up by five at 68-63 with a little more than two minutes to go. One regular season game left for the Hoyas. It's essentially a must-win here, but it would be a big-time resume builder. Georgetown at UConn. Saturday at noon, the Huskies, as we speak, 34th in Division One in the net rankings, 28th in Division One for KenPalm.com. That would be huge if the Hoyas could come through with that victory. All right, that will do it for you and for me for now. Again, thank you so much. Number six is the Al Galdi podcast on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. That is a credit to you. Cannot thank you enough for your support for you subscribing and rating and reviewing. Continue to hit me up on Twitter, at Al Galdi. Continue to let me know what you think, what you want by email, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. Hoyas win! 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 It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. 
The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.